But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, maker of heaven and earth, we come and we bow down before you. And we lift our voices to glorify your nature, your power, your strength, your wisdom, your goodness, your righteousness. Lord, you are wholly other than all of your creation. But Father, you are also a God who is near to your people. You know us intimately. You know our struggles, our worries, our joys, our sorrows, and you care for us as a faithful father cares for his children. Father, you correct us. You encourage us. You guide us. And Father, we confess that if it weren't for your mercy and grace, we would be like sheep lost, for we have wandered each one on our own way. Father, we thank you most of all, that you did not leave us in the condemnation that we deserved, in the darkness that we brought upon ourselves by our head and our first parents in Adam and Eve, and also by our own sinfulness and rebellion. But Father, you as God of light stepped into darkness to shine the, your truth and your love and your mercy upon your people. And it is, Father, it is the light that you have sent in your word, ultimately seen most brilliantly in the person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, the word that dwelt among us, that leads us and guides us as our good shepherd. But Father, we realize that we are so prone to wander. We are so prone towards idolatry, to forming a God in our own image that we can control and that meets our expectation and that looks just like us, for we have formed and fashioned it ourselves. Father, we repent of the sin that we have committed and the good that we have left undone. For we have not been like Christ, but we have sought to please ourselves. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that was completed when Christ cried out, It is finished. Father, I pray that we would rest in what you have done 
and that we would go forth not trying to improve or perfect or finish it, but we would rest in the finished work of Christ. And because of that, we would seek to live lives that honor the one who has saved us from our sin and in, in that we would honor you in thought, in word, and in deed. That we would be satisfied in Christ and that you would be glorified in us. Father, be with us in the proclamation of your word, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If you're not already there, if you would turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, I, don't, I did not write down the, the Pew Bible, uh, the Pew page number in the Pew Bibles, but if you go in the front of your Bible, the uh, table of contents, you have them as they're written in order, but there's also a second table of contents that has an alphabetical list, and you can find 1 Timothy, it's towards the end of the New Testament, and you can find 1 Timothy chapter 6. Well, actually, just we read 11 through 15. We're only going to be looking at verse 15 and verse 16 really today. This great benediction that Timothy, or Paul writes to Timothy, a local pastor in the city of Ephesus, uh, as he gives him instruction how the church and the household of God is to be. But what he does is all that we do and that we are is because of who God is. We are to be a reflection of the character and nature of God and thought and word and deed. And sin is when we are not. When thought and word, deed, honoring and coming under the authority of God and being and living the way he wants. And the reason we're not is because we have a problem. That problem is this, is that often our God is too small. Our God is too small. In evangelicalism, often we have said it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And in this relationship, we have done, we have taken and reduced the almighty God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, to a pocket-sized deity that we can take out, we can rub the lamp, we can call for the butler, and think that we're in a jam, he's going to get us out. We say silly things and put it on our bumper stickers. And if you have this on your bumper sticker, you can just uh, like go move your car around the corner. Um, God is my co-pilot. Jesus is my homeboy. Uh, or whatever saying that will fit on a bumper sticker or a manipulative billboard in the side of I-95 or a Facebook post that you're like, where in the world did these people come up with these manipulative things? If you want to be blessed, share this. If not, in 10 seconds, you will be cursed. What has happened is in evangelicalism, I fear that we have lost the greatness of the supremacy of Christ and the glory and the majesty of God. And we have reduced the almighty God to a little God that we can put in a box and put on a shelf Monday through Friday, Saturday, and we can take down with us on Sunday. 
It is as if we have gone to the edge of the Grand Canyon in all its beauty and splendor, and you feel so small when you stand by it, but rather than gazing at the glory and the beauty that unfolds in front of you, you are obsessed with a little pocket mirror, gazing at your own beauty when the greatness of the Grand Canyon is in front of you. I pray that in the next few weeks as we start the book of Mark, that we will be in awe of the God who has come in flesh, who has rescued us from our sin, and who calls us in His authority over sickness and death and, all, and, and, and the demons, who says, follow me. That we will be like our landlocked friends in the Midwest, and when they come and visit us, what do we do? We bring them to the beach, and as the water laps on their feet and they see the vastness of the ocean, they marvel at the vastness of the ocean. I pray that as we open up the scriptures and see Christ, we marvel. Like when our, our children, we go out on a starry night that's clear and we point them to the stars and to the moons and to the planets and they begin to realize how vast the universe is. I pray that as we open up the scriptures of God, we will see the greatness and the supremacy of Christ and the majesty of our God. It's like a guide who leads a small band of hikers through the th dense thickness of the forest for hours and you feel the burning in your lungs and the ache in your back until you get to the precipice of a great cliff where you can see miles and miles and you stand in awe and wonder at the glory and the vastness of our God. I pray that over the next months and possibly years as we go through the book of Mark that we will be in awe and wonder. Because if we do not glimpse the supremacy of the God of Scriptures, we will continue to wallow in shallow, unbiblical, idol idolatrous picture of a God who is carved in our own image. And we will completely miss the God of Scripture who has come in the person of Jesus Christ and said, follow me. Often we are following a Jesus of our own liking, a Jesus who we want him to be, not the God of Scripture who has come in the flesh. And, and you might be asking, what does 1 Timothy have to do with this? And I wanted to set up our study of Mark with a, a sermon that would really give us a big picture of who God is. The God who, as we see in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does as He pleases. The vastness and the glory of God. In Psalm 104, He lays the beams of His chambers on the water. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the winds of the, wing, the wings of the wind. He makes His messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. I remember 
Psalm 104 was the day Hurricane Matthew hit. I remember reading these verses and thinking the God who, uh, is, that we serve, the creator of heaven and earth, is the God who rides on these powerful, mighty winds. And then we see in Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to review the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. We serve an almighty God who in His love and His mercy and His grace has drawn near to His people to be with them. And what Timothy wants to do, or what Paul wants to impress on Timothy, and also indirectly on us as we read over Timothy's shoulder, is that to see the supremacy of God in all things and how that impacts our everyday life in thought, in word, and in deed. When we realize the supremacy of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, it changes everything. It changes how we worship. It changes how we work. It changes how we play. It changes our personal life when no one is watching. It changes our public life when everyone is watching. It changes our singleness. It changes our marriage. It changes our widowhood. It changes how we parent, how we love our spouses, how we love our children, how we work. It changes everything. The supremacy of God is what I want you to, to impress upon you today. The supremacy in God infuses every aspect of our life with worship. The supremacy of God infuses every aspect of our life in worship. And to be able to understand the supremacy of God, Paul writes four ways that he does that. And he says that God is invincible, that God is immortal, that God is inaccessible, that God is invisible in all of these things. He is invincible, he is immortal, he is inaccessible, and he's invisible. And, the, and when we see and stand in awe and wonder of the greatness of God. Let's look at the first one. God is invincible. Notice verse 15. It says, The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Paul begins to, to paint this beautiful picture of, the, of who God is. And the first color that he dabs his palette with and begins his brush strokes on this, on this uh, portrait is of God's supremacy is the word blessed. And blessed can also be uh, translated happy and somebody who enjoys a favorable circumstance. But we notice as we go through scripture that blessed People are often humans. And we think about the poor in spirit, the, those who mourn, the meek, those who, followers of Christ, when they're reviled by people, and by those who hate, hear the word of God and keep it. They're blessed. Why? 
not because of the circumstances they find in their life, the blessings and the, the joys that they have. They're blessed because they can rest knowing that they enjoy the favor of God even when the favor of man does not encourage them, does not build them up, is not for their benefit, but they rest and they are blessed because they have a right relationship with God. But the question is, if you begin to think that those are people who are blessed, why in the world is God blessed? Why would God be happy? Well, it all connects to his invincibility, and it ensures that God is free from the daily cares and worries that plague our existence. What did you worry about this week? You might have worried about your job. You might have worried about your finances, your health, your future, what comes just around the, the bend. You worry about your children. You worry about your grandchildren. You worry about all kinds of things. Why? Because you don't know what's going to happen. You see the current situation and you have doubt and you have fears. What if this happens? What if they do this? What if, what if, what if? And that causes our hearts to worry. We worry about the past. We worry about the present. We worry about the future. We worry about insignificant things, and we worry about daunting things, and we worry about silly things. But here's what we have to remember. God does not worry about the end. Why? Because Scripture says He has foreordained His purposes in creation, and they will come to pass. Not only does God not worry about the end, what's going to happen when all things pan out, He does not worry about the means to get there because His sovereign righteous hand guides those things to His purposes. He is happy. He is blessed because His perspective on eternity, on the world, is complete and He does not have to worry about the unknown as we do. We don't know what will happen on the way to lunch. We don't know what will happen this week. We don't know what will happen the rest of our life. But God knows. And He is rest sure because nothing can stop His purposes. He sees the tapestry from 30,000 feet and it is a beautiful one when all we see is the mess of tangled yarn in the back and we're confused by the colors and the tangles and the arrangement. God sees the big picture and He accomplishes the small details. He is blessed because he cannot be stifled. And there is not a rebel molecule in all of creation that he does not say, mine. It belongs to me and it is under my control. This is called sovereign. God is sovereign. And we see in Ephesians 1.11 where God it's, Paul also defines this, that God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The great promise this week, I sat with a young lady that's going through a very serious disease. And I encouraged her, I said, I don't know what's going to happen. 
And I know that what you're walking through is hard and is difficult, but I know the promises of God are this. In Romans 8.28, sometimes it's quoted as trite and an empty platitude that people just, God works all things together for good, and you just want to strangle them. But here's the promise. Here's the assurance that we have. Not all things are good, but God is working all things according to the purpose of His good and His will for His glory. And just like Habakkuk says, I don't like what you're doing, God. Where are you? Where aren't you doing how, when acting how I expect you? And then when God reveals the plan that I am doing something in your day that you would not understand if I told you, I'm bringing the Chaldeans. Habakkuk was like, I don't like that. Don't do it that way. But we have the promises of God that his purposes cannot be thwarted, that his end will be accomplished. We know that God is in perfect control. The very God who says the king's heart, the president's heart, parliament's heart, congress's heart, the warlords in the Middle East, their hearts are in the streams of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. That is the God who is invincible, he's powerful, he's sovereign over his creation. God controls not only kings, but he controls paupers. God not only controls and guides the life of the poor, but the rich, the large and the small. Everything is guided by the sovereign hand of God, and we can rest assured that he is working all things together for good, even when we don't understand and quite frankly, we don't like it. God is not a novice. He knows what he's doing. He is a master craftsman who has a vision. He's forming and shaping and cutting and pruning his, his creation, his workmanship for his purpose. God's strong hands is with rivals. It continues in verse 15. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. The most powerful superpowers in all of history are child's play compared to the glory and the power of God. Scripture is replete with examples. Pharaoh. Nobody could touch the power of Pharaoh But it was God who decimated not only the idols of Egypt, but the pride of Pharaoh by the strength of the right hand of God. It was Jericho that was reduced to rubble because though their defenses were tall and strong and thick, it was the word of the Lord that blew it over like like a castle made of cards. The land of Canaan trembled in fear at the hand of God. It was King Nebuchadnezzar who looked over the nations of the earth and said, these are mine by the power of my hand who is reduced to a beast of the field. Why? Because the Lord is invincible. He is King of kings and He is Lord of lords and He can be trusted with our lives. A.W. Pink, in his great book, The Attributes of God, writes this. I can't read that. That's too small back there. Here, then, is a sure resting place for the hearts. Our lives are neither the product of blind fate nor the result of capricious chance, 
but every detail of them was ordained from all eternity and is now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without His permission. Sometimes we walk through the valley and we feel the flames as Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress feared the lions, but they were held captive by the Word of God, by the power of the God of the celestial city. We have the, the promises in the book of Proverbs, a man, heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We have the promises that my times, the psalmist says, are in the hands of the Lord. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Be still before the Lord, the invincible, the almighty God of the universe, and wait patiently for Him. Wait. God is working. God is moving. When we can't see it, when our eyes can't perceive it, the almighty, invincible God of the universe is working. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices, because we have the assurance that our God is invincible and his supremacy infuses every aspect of our life with worship. Every word, every thought, every deed of our life is under the supremacy of our God who is invincible. But not only is our God invincible, but our God is immortal. Notice verse 16. Who alone has immortality? God is not subject to the changes that affect us of time and death and dissolution. We don't, uh, the, the Lord does not fade. He doesn't, He is not um, depreciated. It is not corrupted. He is beyond time. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the fountain of life that is unending, that breathes life into people that are dust. He is the only source of life in all of the universe. He is the source of all that is good and all that is true and all that is beautiful. And without His life, we would perish. Without His breath, we would be a dust. Without His victory, death would swallow us up. Why does this matter? Why does this matter as we stand back and look at the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the supremacy of our God? Because we often watch the news channels on the internet and social media and we see kingdoms and powers that worry us. Political parties, government laws, persecution from uh, corrupt bosses and people in, in authority. But we realize that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but our God remains. We remember that leaders will seize power and they will have power seized from them, but God remains. Children will be born and old men and women will die, but God remains. Fame will burn bright and then will burn out and will eventually be snuffed out by death, but God remains. 
Through it all, God stands untouched by the time that destroys lives and materials and fame and wisdom that he cannot be touched by that. The shadow of his throne eternally looms over the course of history. His wisdom does not fade. His power does not weaken. His dominion does not wane. And what does this matter to us? Why does it matter that God is immortal? God always is there to finish what he started. Larry was in Sunday school was talking about home improvements that projects and projects that we start that often we get about three quarters of the way through and we get tired of them or we get weary of them or we skip steps and we leave the unfinished bathroom sink in the garage for months on end because we just don't want to get around to do that. But our God is not weakened. He doesn't tire, even though young men will grow weary. The word of the Lord and God himself, who is the fountain of life, remains untouched forever. Therefore, we can trust him because God doesn't give up. He doesn't wear down. He doesn't grow tired or old like we do. Paul, in another words, wrote this, I am sure of this, unlike our home improvement projects, that he who began a good work in you, who formed and fashioned you, who caused you to be born again, and who is making you into the image of Christ, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful that God does not quit, that he does not fade, that he does not weaken, because he is supreme, he is immortal. And the supremacy of God then therefore infuses in every aspect of our life worship of the one true God. In his in, 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 um, invincibility, his immortality, and his inaccessible, we see. Notice next, God is invincible, God is immortal, and God is inaccessible, who dwells in unapproachable light. Brothers and sisters, we have created often a God in our own image. As Isaiah says, the idols of the earth are like man because we have crafted them with our own hands. But God, the God of Scripture, not the God that we have created, is a God who is completely different than us. He is transcendent. He is superior to us. He is beyond the limits of our comparison. As Scripture says, He is completely holy. He is separate. He is different from us. He exists in a holiness that is so pure and complete. We cannot approach Him because of the brilliance of light that radiates from Him. Therefore, what happens? Like an insect hides underneath a rock, we cower in darkness and we shield ourselves from his glory. As the great hymn writer wrote, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eyes of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. God's holiness is manifested in the God, as Scripture says, the God who is light. 
A light that exposes all evil, reveals every hidden motive, and chases away every shadow of sin. A light that illuminates things in the darkness, and a light that can never be extinguished. And why does this matter? The holiness of God will not allow evil and pride and rebellion to hide from His purity. Evil will be exposed, sin will be revealed, all will be laid bare. As we go through the book of Mark, we will see where Jesus sees through the the false veneer that the religious leaders put up, the the, uh, self-righteousness that they built to protect themselves and to uh, protect their power. But the righteousness and the holiness of God saw through their sinfulness and exposed their deeds for their deeds, as John said, was evil. We can have confidence in our God, in what our God has called us to be and to do, because God is never duped by our self-righteousness. He is never surprised. He is never confounded. And we can trust him. We can trust what he calls us to do and we trust us what he calls us to be. Because God, and that because of that, the supremacy of God then, because of his invincibility, his immortality, and his inaccessibility, the supremacy of God infuses every aspect of our life with worship. But let me say before I go on to the next point is this. Though God is high and lifted up and no one is worthy to go into the presence of a holy and righteous God. Isaiah chapter 6, we see, as I prayed earlier, the holiness of God caused Isaiah the prophet to fall on his face and say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He realized that the nature of man was that we were sinful, and we couldn't go into the presence of a holy God who's train of his road filled the temple and who angels that that declared holy 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 but what did god do he didn't snuff him out like he deserved as a sinful person who has committed cosmic treason what did he do he called him into his holy presence and he prepared him by bringing the angels to touch his lips and purify him that he may come into the presence of god and have communion with god Not only is God inaccessible to us, we are unworthy to go into the presence of God, but Christ has made us worthy to go into the presence of God. And not only as subjects and servants, but we can go into the presence of the Almighty God and say, Abba, Father. We have access to the Oval Office of the Universe. You think of the presidents, maybe Little Baron, Sasha and Malia, that only little children could go into their parents' inner sanctum of the Oval Office with President Obama and President Trump. Why? Because of the relationship they had. We, as the children of God, who have put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, can go into the presence of the Almighty God because of Jesus, and we can say, Our Father, who art in heaven. That is the joy and the pleasure and the privilege we have 
of worshiping and knowing and being known by the, supremacy, the God who is supreme. God we serve is invincible, he is immortal, he is inaccessible, and he is invisible. Notice as it continues, the God whom no one has ever seen or can see. Man cannot look upon the holiness of the face of God. The light of His holiness destroys sin, and we would crumble if we even got a glimpse of that. Only we can see, as Moses, when he was hid in the cleft of a rock, could see the passing waves of His glory as it went. The, the, we cannot fathom the glory and the majesty and the supremacy of our God. Just like even standing here and looking out on a clear night, we only can see a tiny fragment of the universe. When we stand beside the ocean, we can only see a tiny fragment of the Atlantic Ocean, which is just an infinitesimal glimpse of the vastness of our oceans. We have been given a glimpse of the glory of God that he is pleased to reveal for us and it overwhelming to us. And why does this God who is invisible, who shields his glory because it would overwhelm us, he sends out little rays of his glory and reveals it to us and that we may bask in the glory of our God, which is still beyond us. Job in uh, Job chapter 11 that was wrote, can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. And what can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? It measures is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. God in his glory has shielded his glory. His glory is invisible, but we see the ramifications and the effects of it all throughout his creation. We see a passing glance and shadow and glimmer of that glory that is to come and it overwhelms us and it captures our imagination. I've used this example before and I actually stole it um, uh, from Robert, my pastoral mentor, but if you imagine you were in a canoe uh, in the Pacific Ocean uh, outside just east of Guam and there is the Mariana Trench, not the Marinara Trench that I once said, uh, that would be at an Italian restaurant, um, but it's just east of Guam, and it was about 1,500 miles long. That's long. And it's 43 miles wide, and there is one section of the trench, it's called um, Challenger Deep, that it is nearly seven miles deep. And the, if you imagine you're sitting in that canoe, and you, all you can see is the surface of the water, and often as Christians, we want to be a mile wide and an inch deep, and we don't want to think about the glory of God, and so we reflect upon ourselves. But the depth and the vastness of our God is even deeper than the ocean and the vastness of Challenger Deep. And we have a little Dixie cup. And we take that little Dixie cup and we scoop it over the edge of the canoe and all our lives that little bit of glory that has been revealed to us will sustain us and overwhelm us and capture our imagination for the rest of our lives. The depth of God is infinitely immense and his satisfaction is eternal. 
Yet we form and fashion gods in our own image and we put him on a shelf and we expect at the snap of the fingers he's going to jump and ask us what we want. And like Aladdin, the genie in a lamp that apparently is back out in theaters, we think God is like Robin Williams or Will Smith. That we rub the lamp, we'll get what we want. He's some kind of cosmic butler, spiritual genie. But we realize that God is supreme. He does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. And in doing so, we find true, lasting pleasure and satisfaction because that is how we were created. Brothers and sisters, the supremacy of God infuses every aspect of our life with worship. Because our God is invincible, he is immortal, he is inaccessible, and he is invisible. But what should our response be when we see this uh, spectacular picture of God's glory that even on this side of eternity is through shielded glass because we cannot take the brightness of the glory of God? Paul says this, To him be honor." in eternal dominion. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when we see the person of God, who he is, and the power and the majesty and the supremacy of God, we must bow our knees to the greatness and the glory of God. In verses 11 and 12, you see these practical applications to the, the greatness of God. Notice this, as for you, O man of God, or a woman of God, flee these things. And then he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life from which you were called, about which you would give the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all of Jesus Christ in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and flee free from reproach until the appearance of our Lord Jesus. Don't waste your life, brothers and sisters, pursuing the fleeting pleasures of this world that cannot satisfy you. Don't make them your ultimate ends, your significance, your meaning, your purpose in life. Don't believe the foolish idolatry that the world has created to distract you from the greatness of God. Those mirrors that we gaze into, rather than looking at the vastness of the Grand Canyon, the supremacy of our God. He says uh, there's three things. One, live your life ever aware of the presence of our God. I charge you in the presence of God, he writes, who gives life to all things. God the Father formed me, and he holds me. He is my creator, and I am accountable to him, this almighty God. That should cause us to tremble. That the almighty God is watching us, and we must stand on account and give account for him. How we used our life. Did we live it for our glory, or did we live it for the glory of God? The second thing is submit to the kingship of Christ. Jesus Christ, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. He is the king. 
Bow your knee to the Lordship of Christ. Stop fighting against Christ to do what you want, to build your kingdom. Lay aside the things of this world that you desire and seek first the kingdom of God. And what will happen? He will take care of the things that you need. Even he clothes the lilies of the valley and he feeds the birds of the air. How much more will our Father in heaven care for us? We have a good king who watches over us and gives us what we need when we need it in the amount that we need. Not only do we live their life and ever aware of the presence of God, we submit to the kingship of Christ, but we live a life that honors the Lord. And it says, Paul is writing to Timothy, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Our King is coming again. And he will bring his kingdom on earth as is in heaven as the people of God have prayed for generations. And we desire not to beef up our resume, not to prove our worth to God because there is nothing we can do. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, but we trust the work of our king, his completed work, and therefore we go and tell, and we honor the king. We honor Jesus Christ by living a life that looks like Jesus Christ. We desire to be like Jesus Christ, to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, as only Christ has done and our King works. We honor our King by living a life of obedience to how He calls us to. And it's not a burden because we realize what Christ has done for us. It is our joy and our pleasure to live for Him. We must remember these because we live in a world in rival kingdoms full of rebels and thieves and bandits who will tell us and whisper us lies, lies and pleasures and temptation. And if you do not know the one true God who is invisible, uh, in, um, in, invincible, immortal, inaccessible, and invisible, that's a tough, um, that's a tough, uh, tough one. If you don't know the genuine God of the universe who is supreme, you will fall for all the counterfeits that come along. You will settle for monopoly money when real, genuine U.S. Mint article is given to us because you don't know the difference. We also have limited perspective. As I was talking again in this conversation with this young lady, I was explaining to her that it is in times of... Um, difficulties and struggles that we dig deep in the Word of God. And that reservoir that we have, the Word of God and the hymns and songs of the church are what guides us and strengthens us in those difficulties. I was watching the, um, one of those National Geographic shows and it showed the whales as they are in the northern seas in the, uh, in, in the winter. They're eating and they're building up blubber and they're, they're fattening themselves out so that they, when they go into the Caribbean to give birth, they don't have food because there's not very much food in the Caribbean. And they don't have it, and they're going to need to sustain themselves through labor and caring and feeding their young until they're able to go back into the rich waters of the north with fish and, and food. 
And if they don't feed themselves when the waters are are thick and teeming with life, when they go into the waters that are barren, they will starve and they will die because of the threats of the prey and of of the just sheer difficulty. Brothers and sisters, some of you are in times where the waters are cool and plenteous. Don't be distracted by the good times that you do not root yourself in the foundation of the Word of God. Because when the waters become hot and the sources are meager and you're, it's difficult and you're, the valley is deep and dark, you will need that foundation. You will need that sort. You will need the richness of the marrow of the Word of God to sustain your soul. Because if you don't, you will have nothing, and you will cry out, and you will give up. A fisherman told me once that when the waters are calm, if you're lazy, it will make the waters, when they're rough, deadly. Brothers and sisters, as we go through this journey of Mark, I pray that we would dig deep and and plant our our, our roots deep in the Word of God, that we anchor ourselves deep because it will be what guides us and sustains us when the perspective and we don't understand what God is doing, when our talents cannot provide, our education is meaning and reason can't explain, when we're tempted to doubt His goodness and question His existence and turn our back on His will, it will be the promises of God that will sustain us and hold us and keep us. If we don't know the one true God who reigns supreme, we will be fooled by all kinds of insufficient counterfeits that will not care for us and will not sustain us because they are idols that are formed in our image. It is this, the promise of Psalm 19.7, the law of God is perfect. And what does it say? Reviving the soul. May we anchor deep. May we pour the waters of life into our soul on days when the angels don't sing and the children are running around making lots of noise and you're distracted and you say, is this even worth it? Yes, we must get it in and study and know so that when the times of difficulty arise that we will have our life that is built on the rock. For the supremacy of God infuses every aspect of our life with worship. If we do not know the God of Scripture, as revealed most brilliantly in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we will fall for every counterfeit that comes along the way. And we will be people who offer false worship to the almighty supreme God of the universe.